0: On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar. Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by ROAR? The beauty of ROAR is that it's both an acronym. The acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it. A hidden power inside of us. It is a fire that is often suppressed by fear. That power is your ROAR, and it's waiting to be unleashed. Today, I want to talk about the remarkable power of asking. When was the last time you asked for what you wanted? I mean, something you really, really wanted. I'm not talking about asking for a second helping of a delicious meal or asking for a ride home. No, I'm talking about the big, bold ass, the kind that gives you butterflies in your stomach. In business and in life, there's a magical way to get more of what you want, more of what you need, And more of what you desire. And that magical technique is simply to ask for it. But that might not be as simple as it seems, right? Because first, you've got to get clear on what it is you're looking for, what it is you want. One of my favorite quotes is you create your opportunities by asking for them. Very simple, right? Well, my guest today, Robert Bishop, Dean of the University of South Florida's College of Engineering my alma mater, knows all about the remarkable power of asking to achieve your dreams and goals. This is something he learned at a very early age and has served him well throughout his career. Dean Bishop is recognized as a distinguished teaching professor and researcher in aerospace engineering. He's a specialist in the application of systems and control theory to modern engineering products. He works with NASA on advanced navigation algorithms for test flight vehicles. He is also the co-author of one of the world's leading undergraduate textbooks and control theory and has authored two other textbooks and authored and co-authored over 125 journal and conference papers. Yes, Dean Bishop is a rock star. He's going to kill me for saying that, but I'm saying it. <laughs> I have the pleasure of serving on the University of South Florida's. For me, it's a joy to share him with you because I have the awesome opportunity to serve on the University of South Florida's College of Engineering Advisory Board alongside the Dean and several of my colleagues who were graduates of the University of South Florida. And we have been able to have a front row seat to witness the impressive transformation of the College of Engineering under the leadership of Dean Bishop. Because of his fearless mindset, a vision of transformation and innovation and the remarkable power of asking. The College of Engineering has flourished under his leadership. Let me welcome Dean Bishop to the show.
1: Welcome, Dean. Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, you know, we've had an opportunity over the last few weeks to just reconnect on some of the amazing things that you guys are driving at the university as well as the College of Engineering. Before we get started, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the power of asking, the remarkable power of asking. And I want you to share with our audience just really how that's manifested itself over your life. But before we get into that, I know your background. It is super impressive. I love to give my audience an opportunity to just learn a little bit more about you. So maybe tell us where you're from and, and maybe who were some of your biggest influences growing up?
1: Okay, great. Well, I was born in Vicenza, Italy to an Italian Greek mom, who was herself born and raised in Alexandria, Egypt. Wow. And my father was a U.S. Army musician, big bands and jazz. And he came from Tennessee. So my worldview emerged from a childhood lived in Germany as a military dependent. Sometimes we call them military brats. (laughs) And and, and that's not a pejorative term. That actually uh, has a historical meaning, but... Military brats are one of America's oldest and least well-known and largely invisible subcultures. We are what is sometimes described as a modern nomadic subculture. For example, I lived at my best count, 17 places before I left for college. Wow. And so due to the duties and responsibilities of my dad, who was in the army, I spent lots of time with my mom. I used to get up early in the morning, like 5 a.m. to talk to my mom. Wow. I was the consummate question asker. Why this? Why that? And my mom always answered. And one of her favorite answers was, the little birdie told me. And what that <laughs> meant was, she wasn't going to answer that question. Right. But during these times, I really came to understand that my mom believed deeply you know, in the promise of America A very proud day for her was when she became a U.S. citizen. Yeah. But she always told me that I could be the president of the United States if I wanted to. And Mm -hmm. she didn't push me in that direction, but she wanted me to believe that the world was open to me. Mm -hmm. And so six years ago, when she was in the hospital and she was slowly dying, I I sat next to her as we spoke for the last time. And I told her, you know, Mom, I'm not the president of the United States. (laughs) She held my hand and she said, There's still time. I love it. <laughs> hey, Go, mom. <laughs> she, she was an amazing woman. She spoke many languages. She had a worldview that I wish was shared by many of our mm-hmm. today's leaders. But um, so I would say she was, you know, and, and my father as well, but my mom was really the biggest influencer. And the concept of asking questions was something that my mom always encouraged. Yeah.
0: Love it. Love it. I mean, she sounds like a remarkable woman, right? I mean, just the conversations that you had with her at such an early age, right? I'm sure she just continued to, to your point, expand your worldview and create just the possibilities for your future. And I love that she encouraged you to ask questions. And so, like I said, it, it really started at a very early age, your, your curiosity, your wanting to know more and obtain knowledge, and then I think the fact that uh, your dad, you said, was from Tennessee.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a combination, huh?
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you're totally, you're so awesome. And I know it's because of those two amazing people. And you mentioned about moving 17 times. So that tells them that you have no problem, you know, landing and connecting and, and, and building relationships.
1: Is that true? Yeah, that's true. And I, I think, you know, as a young boy, I used to uh, dream of. What it would be like to live in the States, you know, and what it would be like to, you know, live in a small town with a white picket fence. Mm -hmm. I am, you know, I didn't understand how valuable and how important my upbringing actually was, but I do understand it now. And it is uh, the case that, you know, I bloom where I'm planted. Mm -hmm. And that comes from, you know, a lifetime of moving. I mean, every time I had a good friend, I moved. Mm. And, you know, so you would think, well, what are the negative consequences of that? And there are some, but mostly it's positive.
0: Absolutely. Well, when you think about your experiences growing up, you know, overseas and then transitioning to the U.S., you know, these experiences really shaped you to be who you are. You know, what stands out for you as maybe a defining moment that helped you find your roar, really helped you chart your course and your path forward?
1: Yeah, good question. I had several defining moments, but the one that really comes to my mind uh, and something that I think about um, on occasion was in 1964-65, my father was sent to Vietnam. Mm-hmm.
2: You
1: know, I'm the oldest child. I have two siblings. But I vividly recall sitting on the couch with my mom, you know, watching the evening news with Walter Cronkite.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, later I got to meet Walter Cronkite. Wow. Way. I that. just loved him. <laughs> me too. And my mom and I sat together most evenings, you know, and listened as the body counts were delivered, you know, complete with photos of body bags. Mm. Mind, I was a second grade, right? So I was always wondering if my dad was in one of those mm-hmm. bags. So that was a defining moment for me. I was a very young boy, but I've since many times traveled to Vietnam on academic missions, recruiting students, giving lectures. And I personally witnessed the impact of that war from the other point of view as well. So all this really has strengthened my resolve, you know, to be the best that I can be and to contribute in a positive way, you know, to making the world a more just in a safer place. That was, uh, for me, a defining moment or moments.
0: Wow. I mean, I can't imagine, right, to your point as a young person looking, knowing your dad was overseas and hoping that he would come back safely. And he did. But again, having the sensitivity around not only what you all were experiencing in the U.S., but what the people in Vietnam was experiencing. It sounds like that led you on some missions to really find ways to get back and, and impact that country. That's fantastic. You know, I know you, you've been a, a dean at, uh, at a couple you know, major universities. Tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a dean and now, you know, your, your time at USF, which has been just amazing. Talk a little bit about how you transitioned to becoming a dean.
1: Okay. Well, let me just say that my life trajectory, professional trajectory is unplanned. Mm-hmm. I, I know how that sounds because, you know, a lot of folks think that you really have to plan your career to have a successful one. I'm not saying it's unplanned in the sense that it's random, but I didn't have necessarily a plan to become an engineering college dean. Mm -hmm. But here's how it started. So I went to college. And when I got to school, the first thing that I did was go to the dean's office there and tell him I want to go to work for NASA as a co-op student. Now, I was just a, you know, I was 17 years old because I started college early. And it was kind of a joke to them, like, we, well, you, know, you know, you're not even in school yet. But like, <laughs> You know, what I want you to do is I want you to help me become a NASA co-op. And they did. And so I, in the summer of 76, I became a NASA co-op for the first time. And I had the good fortune of being sent to Ames Research Center out in California to do a wind tunnel test on what was to become the uh, space shuttle. Wow. So I went out there and we did these testings and I decided to go ahead and write a paper.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: you know, um, writing a paper, you know, as an undergraduate, when you're you know, a sophomore, as people thought that was crazy, but I thought it'd be a good idea and good practice. And I did write a paper and I did get it published. It wasn't published in a great journal. It was published in a local journal, but it was re- peer reviewed and it was published. And later, and I guess I was about a third or fourth year, I think I was a fourth year in college. Mm-hmm. A NASA division chief was visiting the university and he was standing in the hall and he said, hey, you know, uh, I understand that you would like to go to school at MIT for graduate school. And I said, I would. And he said he had read this paper. This wow. Paper, right. And so he knew the folks at the, what was then called the Charles Stark Draper Labs, but it had been the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory. These are the engineers who designed and built the guidance uh, uh, computers for the Apollo uh, landings. So I went up there and interviewed and they gave me a job. So I went from, you know, uh, college to uh, MIT and I was at the Charles Stark Draper labs. I was working on shuttle things and I was going to school. Right. And I realized, you know, there's something about, I had a master's degree at that time, not a PhD. I realized that there was some things I didn't understand about Kalman filtering. Hmm. Kalman filtering was the algorithms that they were using to do navigation and so I decided, well, let me learn about Kalman filtering. So I got in contact with uh, Dr. Kalman. Okay. Asked him if he, uh, you know, would be interested in me studying with him. And at the time, he wasn't because he was uh, at a place in his career where he didn't want new students. But, but he had a student who had just graduated and who was on the faculty at Rice University, but held a joint appointment with the ETH in Zurich. We are professors mm. So I, I uh, was able to get uh, uh, my advisor, at, who became my advisor at Rice, to, uh, to support my Ph.D. program. And I did study in Zurich with Professor Kalman, had an office right next to his. So then after I got my Ph.D., I decided to go back to Draper. But the Draper folks are, are very interested in also careers in academia. So they suggested, well, why don't you, you know interview uh, in academia and see what happens so I did, and I got the position at the University of Texas at Austin, which was a top 10 department of uh, aerospace engineering a top 10 college. Wow! And I stayed there, and I worked my way up through the ranks, assistant professor, associate professor with tenure, full professor. Then I became a department chair. Mm-hmm. And the next step after department chair is the dean. Mm-hmm. So I decided to change universities for no particular reason other than I had a vision of of a new way of doing engineering, teaching and research. Mm-hmm. And, um, Marquette university was considering building a facility to do that. So I went there, I was a Dean there for four years and I loved uh, Milwaukee and I loved Marquette, but uh, I was anxious to get back into large public schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, I met with president Genshaft and provost Wilcox. And they said, you know, if you want to be the Dean here, we- we'd like for you to do that. So. Wow. I Marquette came here uh, six years later. The college is, uh, you know, went from four thousand students. We now have over seven thousand students. Um, the faculty has grown. Our research has grown. Everything is is in a good uh, is in a good. So that's how I got to become a dean again, unplanned. <laughs> but I always keep my mind open to yes. opportunities.
0: I love that. I mean, as you begin to kind of unpack um, just your journey, it's almost like you had an intention. You decided what you wanted and you just asked, right? Uh, never undaunted by who the person on the other side uh, that would receive the ask, if that was a person you wanted to get connected to, or you wanted their help, you just simply ask. And was there any fear or self-doubt as you began? Because I mean, you, I mean, to call Professor Kalman <laughs> and say, you don't know me from a can of paint, but I want to be one of your students. I mean- right. That, to me, had to create some butterflies in your stomach. I mean, this is a world-renowned professor.
1: (laughs) Well, no, you're right. And uh, I don't want to give the impression that these things were easy for me to do, but uh, because I am not bulletproof. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I often despair at rejection. And a lot of my life, as most people, have been characterized by naysayers and thoughtless people, you know, mean spirited bullies. But I think what differentiates my approach is that I despair quickly. Ah, and I move on. So I don't try not to despair. I don't try to talk myself into not I just say, okay, look, this is a moment, I'm going to feel bad. And then I'm going to get over it. And my dad, my dad used to say to me, what's the worst that can happen? Mm -hmm. Okay, and the answer to that is almost always, in the long run, it doesn't matter.
2: Mm -hmm. So I try
1: to keep that approach, you know, I mean, my advice is to be unafraid to ask important figures that have achieved the level of success that you seek, you know, to meet and talk, ask for their advice, maybe text them, maybe email them. I think it's best to do it in person, but I think that's important. So if uh, I give you a quick example, so, you know, I love art and music. This comes from my mom, you know, being an artist and my dad, a musician. And then, you know, having grown up in Germany, I always felt I was missing certain things in the States. Mm -hmm. music concerts right? And 68, 69, somewhere around there, we returned back to the States. We were staying in Knoxville at my grandma's house, you know, while my dad waited for quarters in Key West, where we were ultimately uh, stationed. My dad was ultimately stationed. And the monkeys were in concert. Now, oh, yeah. now I know they're not a rock band, but <laughs> but this was my first opportunity to go to a rock concert. Okay. Right. So I went and the first thing I did was try to sneak backstage to hang out with the band. But I love it. I was like, you know, 11 years old. I got caught. Okay. <laughs> but undaunted. Yep. And then while watching the Ed Sullivan show some weeks later, I saw a group. It's a group called Smith. Probably don't remember them. They had two albums, but they were pretty big back at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Some months later, when we were in Key West, guess what? A group called Smith was playing a concert. And I attempted to get backstage again. <laughs> And this time I made it. Wow. I got to hang out with the band. And so, you know, since that time, I have hung out backstage with Paul Rogers and Bad Company. I've met Mick Fleetwood. I've hung out with Alvin Lee of 10 Years After, Chris Layton, the drummer of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Oh my goodness. And others. And the reason that I have been able to do that is because I just ask. Mm. You know, and most of the time they look at you like you're crazy, right? (laughs) But every once in a while you get in. (laughs) And there it is. That's how I met Alvin Lee. I was uh, about 10 years old. I was at a concert. You know, you probably wonder, like, I got to go to concerts at that young age. But my dad was a musician. Um. Right. So I went to this concert and I'm standing up there grabbing a Coke or something. A door opens and Alvin Lee walks in. This is a band called 10 Years After. And I started talking to him, you know, just a kid. And then many years later, I was in a small club in Austin and he was playing and I walked up to him, started talking to him. You know, he didn't remember meeting me when I was a little kid. But anyway, the point is, is that he's a nice guy. He was willing to talk to me. I love music and I love guitar. And why not ask? All he could do is say, you know, get away.
0: Yeah. Wow. I love it. I mean, your view is just ask, right? And I love what you said, despair quickly and move on. But just put it out there and see what happens because- the worst thing they could say is no, and maybe you propose something different, but it, it seems like a common thread in your life that started at such an early age. I love it. I love it.
1: Right. Yeah, thank you. I think that's the way to live. Love it. So, you know, Norman
0: Vincent Peale was known for saying, change your thoughts and you can change your world. I'm curious about the role that mindset has had on your success, right? You know, What are some of the core beliefs, values, or mindsets that have driven you to go after things you want with such relentlessness?
1: Well, again, I think it goes back to the fact that, you know, I've had the great fortune to have met many uh, important and successful people. And and what I have found is that most of them want to engage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most of them want to share their wisdom. They want to tell you their story. They don't want you to get autographs or to take pictures and selfies. What they want to do is talk. They want to tell you mm-hmm. about their life. So I took this approach from an early age, you know, to just ask. I'll give you an example, another example. So I decided to step out of my own comfort zone as a teacher. And I offered a course called Art in Engineering. Again, I, you know, I, I do like art. And this was a so-called signature course at UT Austin for incoming first year students. So here's an engineering professor trying to teach an art class. Right. So as I thought about how to organize a class, I recall that Alan Bean, the fourth person to walk on the lunar surface was an artist.
2: Uh
1: Yeah. So I got in contact with him. He invited me to his private studio. Wow. I drove there. We spent many hours talking about his art and about art in general. And then I invited him to guest lecture in my course. And he guess what? He accepted. He wanted to talk to students. He came and our students had the opportunity to meet a moonwalker. Wow. So I think that's my mindset is, you know, what is the harm in asking. And what is the upside in asking? Well, the harm is, you know, nothing, in my opinion. The upside, though, is that my students had the opportunity to talk to Alan Bean and, you know, about his art. Not about walking on the moon, not about, you know, being an engineer, not about, but just his art. So I I think that's important. Just ask.
0: Love it, love it. Like Nike, just do it. i love it just be nike
1: so let's talk a
0: little bit about the opportunities that have you know presented themselves because of your willingness to just ask i mean the o and and roar stands for opportunity and it reminds us to be on the lookout for those rare moments when serendipity places us in the path of greatness you co-authored with astronauts you've sat down with presidents you've you know had the audience of artists and musicians how have you been able to recognize and capitalize on those moments when the universe seems to open a door for you
1: I think the key is to be uh, sensitive to those opportunities. I think we all have those opportunities. I'm not sure we're all tuned into that. And so I think you have to do that, you know. So I'm a lifelong learner. What I have found is that successful people, each in their own way, have paved their own pathway, right? I don't meet these folks to figure out how I can be them. I meet them to figure out how they became them and wonder you know, what were the key characteristics? And I find that they all have a vision. They all pursue it. They all fail and they try again. Sometimes they change the direction a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's a simple concept. And the only way to fail in the long run, you, you know, is to stop trying. So, you know, when I was a kid, I, all I wanted to do was play guitar. I wanted to be in a rock band, right? That was my dream. And my father told me, well, look, if you practice guitar four hours a day for I can't remember how long it was. Wow. Well, I'll, I'll get you a guitar. And so, you know, I lived in Germany. Remember that the Beatles had a strong connection to Germany. And there was a, a guy there named Hoffner and the guitar that he made for Paul McCartney was that famous violin bass that Paul McCartney uses. And so I said to my dad, well, look, if I do this, I want that man to make my guitar. And so my dad made it happen. I still have that guitar, actually. So my desire to be in a rock band was from the early days. So now I'm at a pizza shop one day, owned by a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. We're talking about music as we always did. And I said to him that I recalled a fabulous guitar player named Ben Wilkes. I relayed the story of how I bought his album, one of the few apparently that bought that album, (laughs) called Bombay Tears. And there was a song on that album that has a mind-boggling guitar riff. Mm. And you know Van Wooks uh, used to open for a band called Heart, if you remember that band. But Mm -hmm. anyway, guess what? My buddy knew Van. And he said, oh, I mean, this is crazy, right? So this is an opportunity where I don't know how it happened, Lakeisha, but here it is. My friend got me in contact with Van. I called him up. And you know what I asked him? I asked him he would be my guitar teacher. Okay. (laughs) And he said, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and he said, yes. And we played together for many years. Now, I was never able to reach, you know, his level of play. He's an amazing guitar player. He's in the Texas Music Hall of Fame. But I have tons of memories. So the question really is, goes back to, like, why did that opportunity present itself?
2: Mm-hmm. Like, I don't
1: know the answer to that. But I think that I could have just said, oh, wow, it's great you know Van, and just moved, moved on. on. Mm-hmm. But I didn't. I said, well... If you know him, can you get me in contact with him? And then I'm thinking to myself, well, what am I going to say to him? Mm -hmm. Well, I can talk about how great I think he is, et cetera, et cetera. But really, that's probably not what he needed or wanted to hear. I think what he wanted to hear was, how could he help me? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And he did. Yeah.
0: I love it. And that's what most people want to do. Right. They want to be a blessing to others. Right. So how can they help you? And so you're right. We just simply have to ask. You know, I'm reminded of something my grandmother would always say. You may resonate with this. A closed mouth never gets fed. Right. So if you (laughs) want to eat, you're going to open your mouth and talk. Right. So whatever it is that you want, you have to articulate it and then see what happens. Love it. Love it. And I think the other piece, I know you and I talked about this, is that we have to recognize that even though the folks that we encounter are accomplished people, they're still regular human beings, right? That wake up on the same side of the bed or other side of the bed, that put their pants on the same way we do, and really also enjoy just human connection and just talking. And um, I think you resonate with that, right? Absolutely, 100%. And so, you know, let's talk about some of the things that you've been able to accomplish, right? I know you you said, Lakeisha, I'm not really a born leader. I've heard you say that, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that leadership wasn't innate for you, but your life is so full of powerful leadership accomplishments. How have you filled that gap? How have you built over the years that leadership capability in yourself? And then I know you have a passion for developing that in others. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, I think first off, I'm unafraid to fail. Mm, so powerful. In fact, in fact uh, you know, I expect to fail. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I often do. <laughs> okay. But I carry on. And so I work each day on leadership. I have always uh, continued to be a teacher. I still teach classes, write proposals, perform research, you know, mentor grad students and all the things that professors do. Why do I do that? because I believe that powerful leadership follows from experience. Mm. I don't read leadership books, but I do have a professional coach. Okay. So there's a lot to be learned about leadership that some of us who weren't born into families where there were, you know, senators and, you know, and generals and so Mm -hmm. forth in our lives, there's a lot to be learned. But what I've learned mostly from, my coaching and, and just from my, my, my work as uh, trying to improve my leadership is that influence is relational. So I had to find a way out of my desire to minimize losing friends and colleagues, or, you know, think of what it's like to be a military brat, right? So I had to find a way out of that desire to minimize, you know, losing friends and to become socially active. And I've done that much to my own amazement because I'm not inherently that person. So one of the hardest parts of social distancing for me, you know, with this COVID-19 is that I can't sit and hang out with friends, you know, and colleagues. But, you know, I remember the first time that, well, the only time that I ever met with President Jimmy Carter. And you're right about, you know, what you said about them just being ordinary people. So here I am, I'm at this event where we are uh, celebrating uh, Barbara Jordan's life. Oh, wow. Wow. And, you know, Rosalind Carter was there and a lot of folks like that. And I was standing there watching, um, you know, that. And I noticed off to my, my right there, there was like somebody standing there. And I turned. It was former President Jimmy Carter, just standing there. It's an ordinary mm-hmm. guy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought, well, this is great. So I said to him, President Carter, I am so happy to know that you're a nuclear engineer. He <laughs> said to me, I'm not a nuclear engineer. Never was. <laughs> so he wasn't a nuclear engineer. It's not true. Mm-hmm. I found him to be modest and engaging. And he published a book of poems. Can you imagine a president opening up and exposing his emotions and inner thoughts like that? And that, that has stuck with me in terms of my leadership. Mm-hmm. So He has this, this book called Always a Reckoning. It's a book of poems, and it's always stuck with me. But, but what he says in there is that what comes in has to equal what goes out.
2: Mm You
1: know, quote, like oscillating ocean waves. Wow. And I've always kept this in my mind that, you know, uncertainty leads to change and change brings a sense of loss. So in our work as leaders, you know, leading change, we need to remain sensitive to that sense of loss. So for (laughs) me, the key word is empathy. And that was something that I wouldn't say it was learned, but the concept of empathy really was driven home to me over the years. And that really defines, I think, my leadership style.
0: Wow. Powerful, powerful. And I know, you know, because of that, right, because of your your experiences, your leadership journey, and just your vision, not only developing talented, brilliant engineers, but you also understand the importance of cultivating leadership in those engineers, as you send them out to the workforce, talk a little bit about maybe some of the things that you're doing to cultivate that empathetic leadership and that leadership growth mindset in your engineers at the college.
1: Sure. Well, I believe that leadership is most powerful in its apparent absence. So Mm. what do I mean by that? So, you know, these are tumultuous times Right. Higher education is certainly experiencing stresses and strains across a wide spectrum of challenges. But when the organization seems to be running effortlessly, from the point of view of the people in the organization, in my case, faculty, staff, and students, even though things externally are chaotic and fast changing, then I think leadership is successful, Okay. I mean, think about it. contrast this to a leader, a person in leadership position that's always telling you how smart they are. Mm. It's always telling you how great their decisions are. <laughs> it's always telling you how they're going to make things great and all that, right? So you see the difference. I don't think that's the way leadership is most powerful. Yes. So you know, crisis illuminates leadership. So when COVID nineteen is behind us, I suspect that many of us will be proud of the leadership throughout this ordeal, but many others will be deeply disappointed in themselves and their responses to this uh, challenge. So what we're trying to do in the college is we created a a leadership program at the dean's level that is really human centric. Okay. So we always talk about, you know, different types of capital, financial capital and in particular, but, um, I'm concerned that we aren't focusing enough on human capital. And so the point of this leadership program, uh, Bulls Lead, is to create an environment in which students do what President Carter did. They expose their emotions. Mm -hmm. You know, some people view that as weakness. I don't. I view that as strength. Okay. And in fact, I don't know how you connect to people if you don't do
0: that. Totally agree.
1: And so that's part of our program is the students, they, they have coaching, by the way, we provide coaching to them. They have to journal, you know, and you can imagine engineering students, the first time you tell them, they have to write a journal.
0: <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> you know, it's like, really? Fear, fear. <laughs> and,
1: and I think that that is the future really of engineering uh, leadership. And that is to be human centric. I mean, after all, engineering is all about helping people. And, you know, if we can't connect to people, how in the world are we going to help them? Really? So that's kind of where we are with that. I mean, you know, how can we help people that we don't know if we can't even help people that we know in times of need? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have created a program in the college. We developed a process, safety protocols on an assembly line, and we've manufactured and delivered over 18,000 face shields. Wow. Over the past months, you know, to the folks who are out there on the front lines of the COVID-19. So, you know, the College of Engineering, you know, stood up and were counted. And that's what I think is critically important for our future. Engineers need to connect to people because those are the people that we're helping. Absolutely,
0: I love that. I love that. I mean, and again, you talked about some of the amazing people that you've just been so tremendously blessed to connect with over your years, and you've met some phenomenal leaders. I mean, you just talked about um, just the opportunity to connect with President Carter and, and the wisdom that he shared there. You know, is there anyone else that you would say over the years that you've interfaced with that have kind of given you the biggest boost or energy or, or just kind of dropped the most powerful wisdom that you've applied in your life, and it's been game changing? Talk a little bit more about that, and then I want to want to kind of pick your brain on some of the innovative programs that you're driving in the university right now.
1: I think that for me, my uh, experiences in terms of meeting folks and learning has been integrated over many people. It's Mm -hmm. not, I haven't met a single person, but I'll give you an example. When I got to meet and work with Buzz Aldrin, Mm -hmm. here's a person, you know, who has done some amazing things uh, in his life. And when I met with him the first time and and many times after that, all he wanted to talk about was technical things. Like he didn't want to talk about necessarily about, you know, what it was like to walk on the moon or when he was flying to the moon or whatever. He wanted to know, how can we create trajectories between earth and the moon and between earth and Mars that we can put a hotel on? Wow. (laughs) And I got to thinking about this man, you know, he has a PhD and actually his PhD uh, advisor was the person at uh, Draper Labs that hired me. So that was the connection that I had to, uh, to Buzz Aldrin. But
2: wow. know, that,
1: that sort of opened up my mind to the point that, you know, when you meet with these people, they don't want fans. They have enough fans. Mm-hmm. What they really want is to work with you on things of interest to them and to help you with things that are interest to you. So Buzz Aldrin would be another one that I would add to my list of, you know, folks that have helped me understand why as a dean I still need to teach, why I still need to do research.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, why did I start the uh, Institute of Applied Engineering? Like, why Why would I do that? Because, you know, as some of these very successful people are, you know, life moves on. It continues on, right? I mean... Mm-hmm can't live in the past and so um so I wouldn't say there's necessarily a single person you know I think I've shared you know that my mom was central and my father was uh my dad was central to everything that we had I mean we were not wealthy, far from it I mean my mom and I used to go uh you know shopping for clothes at um uh, you know at the various uh goodwill stores and, mm-hmm. and uh, but we were very s- close family
0: yeah, absolutely.
1: We didn't share a lot of fancy cars and big houses, but we shared a lot of love. And so that for me was probably the most influential. And, you know, I've been uh, married now for like 35 years.
0: Congratulations. That's wonderful.
1: And uh, we have two very fine, successful boys. And all that really kind of flows down from, you know, where we were. Uh, By the way, both of my boys have adopted the same philosophy as I is, which is just ask. And um, they've both been fairly successful. And as I expected in that, again, people who are very successful, by and large, want to talk to you. That's true.
0: That's true. Yeah, and we've been talking about that through the podcast and just in, in different networks that I have. I mean, especially in this you know socially distanced environment where we, we don't have, as you talked about, the ability to go have coffee, to do physical happy hours. Connection is even more important. And people are, are happy when you reach out and say, hey, do you have 15 minutes to chat? I mean, they're hungry for it. And so I think we have to make sure we don't lose out on the opportunity to make the phone calls and get the, the one-on-ones with people that we think can um, help us in any, any way shape, form, or fashion. And, and really what I've, what you just articulated is the power of relationships in your life, right? The power of asking and you cultivate relationships that have been transformed to not only your personal life, but your professional life. And that's really what it's about. Right. And that's fantastic. And so you begin to articulate a few things that you've been able to drive successfully, and there's a lot more, but I want to talk about, you know, that you've been at USF for six years and you've, you've come in with an innovative mindset, a creative mindset, you surrounded yourself with a phenomenal team and the university has seen tremendous growth. Talk a little bit about maybe one of the things you're most proud of. And I know you're, you know, you're doing some work with the, with SOCOM, the air force, so many different organizations and you believe in the power of collaboration and how that can produce an X factor for tremendous growth and success. So maybe talk a little bit about something that you're, you're proud of that you guys have been doing over the last few years.
1: Well, I think the college, you know, as a unit is, um, running on all, on all cylinders right now. Um, Obviously, as with most organizations, we could always use more resources. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, that's kind of a given. But uh, I think I'm very proud of how we have addressed student success. Mm -hmm. The College of Engineering students, you know, our uh, retention from first to second year is, you know, 93,
0: 92, 93,
1: 94 percent. Wow. You know, find a College of Engineering that does that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and at the same time, you know, we're dealing with many first-generation students to college. We're dealing with many, you know, students from, let's say, a wide uh, range of economic backgrounds and, and experiences. So I think that's the, that's the thing I'm most proud of in terms of, you know, how we're delivering educational opportunities to our students and how they're stepping up and accepting those opportunities. And then, you know, I think specifically the Institute of Applied Engineering is something that we're very proud of. And, um, you know, we've just signed an $85 million contract with Special Operations Command. You know, that is a level of contract that, you know, typically you wouldn't think of USF. You would think of other big name schools, but no, we, we are one of those big name schools. I mean, we are, you know, we're a preeminent university in the state of Florida now. Absolutely. And uh, we're on the move, and I'm I'm proud of that as well.
0: Love it, and I know you guys have just uh, recently opened a medical engineering
1: program. That's right. Yep, yeah. one of the. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yep, yeah, exactly. So you know what is medical engineering? Well, if you think about uh, engineering, what you think about or, or biomedical engineering, you think about a department in the College of Engineering that has engineering faculty members on it that you know, focus their work in medical devices or things of that nature. But what we did was different at USF. We created a department that is joint, it's in engineering, but it's jointly governed with the College of Medicine. So there are actually medical doctors on the faculty in that department. So what does that mean? It means that students are getting clinical experience, for example, it means that students who are in that program, if they decide to go to medical school, they can go directly to medical school. They don't have to step out and take, you know, organic two or whatever, mm-hmm. they didn't, whatever they typically miss in a biomedical engineering department. We've got the programs aligned for them to go right to med school. We got the programs aligned for them to go right into medical device companies. Love it. So it's a unique structure. That I think is very, very successful. It has been very successful. It's probably our hardest department to get into already, and uh, the students who are in there are fabulous. Wow! Way, you might think, well, gee, if if it's hard to get into, you know, what does the uh, student population look like? Well, let me tell you, it is the most diverse department I have.
2: Wow!
0: I mean, the things that you guys are doing, right? I mean, the innovative programming, uh, really. I would say just blazing new trails in terms of understanding what's needed in terms of educational programs, what's needed in terms of research, what's needed in terms of just breakthrough innovations. And you're just blazing the trail for that. And I'm just excited to to graduate from USF and and just even more thrilled to be a part of the transformation that you guys are driving. So thank you so much, Dean Bishop. Hey, I want to ask, is there anything else that you want to share with the audience that I didn't get a chance to ask you?
1: No, I, um, I'm just honored to be uh, with you on this uh, podcast and get the opportunity to, you know, to talk about the college and, and to talk about uh, leadership.
0: So I'm going to get to a fun round of questions. But before I do, I mean, I know uh, USF, you know, has a new president, President Corral. And is there anything you can share that might give us a, some uh, insight into maybe some of the new things that we can expect on the horizon with the new president? Um, who I know has a strong passion and interest for what you're driving in the College of Engineering. Anything exciting on the horizon that we we should look to see in the next couple of years?
1: Well, certainly, the uh, President Corral is very deeply involved in technology, intellectual property, uh, creativity, all the uh, uh, issues kind of surrounding the work that engineering is part of. Mm -hmm. So I think that is very exciting. So I I think we can expect that the college uh, and the university is going to continue to drive the research programs in a very positive way. And by research, I'm really talking about applied research. There's certainly a strong emphasis in basic fundamental research, but I think the beauty of Of where we are today is that we're accepting that applied research is just as valuable. So by applied, I mean I'm solving problems that have a solution that are is required today. Today, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe next week, but but not not in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Although the 10-year horizon is important too. So I, I think that's where President Corral is is focused on how do you organize, right? How do you organize yourself for intellectual uh, property or development of uh, intellectual property? How do you organize yourself for creativity? So that's exciting. Now, you know, President Genshaft had the same views, actually. She was a very big supporter of the college.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And so we do miss her. But President Corral is just carrying on in, in some ways. And in some ways, he's even pushing us harder to go higher, which I'm very excited about.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, listen, you have just been a joy to chat with, and so I want to make sure I give you a little bit of your time today back to enjoy uh, the afternoon. But let's end up with a, a fun round of lightning questions. So um, I've got—I'll say a word or a phrase, and you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. What's your favorite food? Pasta. Pasta. All right, I can get that. Your guilty <laughs> pleasure, if you have one.
1: <laughs> Good wine.
0: Oh yes. Okay. And I doubt if you have a lot of time, Dean Bishop, but. <laughs> do you have a current Netflix addiction?
1: I do not watch much TV.
0: I didn't think so. I didn't think so. So, you know, if, if we could travel and maybe once we do travel, is there a particular location that you want to go and, and have a little bit of R&R?
1: I do. I would love to spend some time in, in the Trang, Vietnam. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I have yet to visit Vietnam, but it is definitely on my list. Um, I've had some friends to go much like you and they absolutely love it. They love it. Who inspires you? I'm sure there's probably a couple people.
1: You know, I am inspired today by the frontline healthcare workers. Yeah, I agree. You know, I don't have to explain that, right?
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I, I, who inspires me changes over time, but today, that's who inspires me.
0: Spot on, spot on. And so, you know, what's your favorite way to unwind? Is that with some pasta and a glass of wine? <laughs>
1: You know, I am a big fan of music, um, Mm -hmm. especially music from the sixty-five to seventy-five, nineteen sixty-five to nineteen seventy-five kind of range. So we're talking about, you know, Motown, rock, uh, British. Mm -hmm. So yes, having a glass of wine and listening to music, and so when I said I didn't have a Netflix addiction i do have a youtube addiction however oh well <laughs> say more say more <laughs> i watch shows about rock concerts
2: um, ah
1: about so. bands you know vh1 where are they now and yeah. yeah yeah
2: that's I a do, fun show i
1: do, I do, I do enjoy that <laughs> love it love
0: it well listen again just a huge congratulations and thank you sincerely for all that you're doing in the college of engineering. And it is an absolute joy and privilege to just partner with you, your leadership team and the, the rest of the amazing leaders on the, the engineering advisory board. So continue to do what you're doing. And we are right here with you alongside you. So thank you so much for your time, Dean Bishop.
1: Thank you, Lakeisha. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. We're it's, it's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of ROAR. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time.